Welcome to LifeSight AI, the podcast series brought to you by Cypro and hosted by me, Nick Mahoney. This series looks to shine a light on the key developments of AI within the life science industry. Following on from the successful roundtable Cypro hosted in 2020, we aim to bring cross collaboration between common projects and to help promote the use of AI in life sciences. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome back to LifeSci AI, the podcast series brought to you by Cypro and hosted by myself, uh, Nick Mahoney. If you can see from YouTube, we are still recording in a lockdown and uh, this new one, I imagine you'll be able to see the measurement of time through the lack of uh, haircut I have as my hair grows, as the lockdown goes on. Um, but on this, this, this episode, I'm really excited to be joined by uh, Jonathan O'Keefe. Uh, Jonathan is the founder and CEO of Machine Medicine Technologies in London, a really exciting and ambitious startup, um, but I'll let uh, Jonathan take over and explain a little bit more about himself and, and, and what they do there. Uh, thanks very much, Nick. Um, yeah, I'll just give you a, a sort of brief overview of, of Machine Medicine. Um, so it really came out with, um, it really came out of my interest in um, uh, the interaction between machines and minds and the relationship between machines and minds, which I first sort of came across um, as a sort of uh, area of study and research in, in my undergraduate philosophy degree. And then from then on, always followed that kind of interest. I went on to study neuroscience at Oxford and then, and then medicine uh, at Oxford and then working as a doctor and specializing in neurology for several years before I ultimately abandoned um, clinical practice and and decided that I could best fulfill this kind of um, this uh, vocation, as it were, by starting a company. And machine medicine is really um, about um, about that sort of uh, transformation in in neurological healthcare, which has traditionally been a, a something of a sort of therapeutic desert. It's been, if you look at, for example, drug development, it's been very hard to develop drugs um, that are effective for uh, neurological disease, uh, you know, uh, but there are, there are some exceptions, but in general, it's been very hard to design new drugs. But in the last 20 or 30 years, really um, uh, a new form of, of therapeutics has come into uh, being, which uh, you might call neurotechnology, or, or in particular, we focus on an area of that called neuromodulation. And it's really about using uh, machines to uh, interact with uh, the brain and, and the, the spinal cord and other parts of the nervous system and, and to do so in such a way that you can actually start to reprogram um, the, the brain or the central nervous system or indeed the peripheral nervous system um, by essentially kind of talking to it with, with its own language, which is electrochemical kind of interactions. And, uh, and, and so machine medicine is, is ultimately sort of uh, aiming to become a kind of software and data layer for this this transformative and revolutionary uh, form of therapeutic medicine. Um, and, uh, and we've started off by, by working in clinics that, that uh, do these kind of procedures, deep brain stimulation, in particular, a kind of neuromodulation. And there we, we provide a, a motor assessment platform for a, a, a thing that's done called a DOPA challenge, which is where a patient comes in off medication, they get uh, their motor system is assessed and then they take their medication and motor system is reassessed. And this is a pivotal uh, examination in determining whether or not that patient 
uh, is likely to benefit from uh, deep brain stimulation. And, and so it's, a, it's kind of, if you like, our first application in, a, in, in, the, in the journey to, towards building a, a platform um, uh, level solution for this, this kind of technology. Awesome. So in terms of a space, it's really exciting it, within uh, life sciences and medical devices as a platform. Um, and one that you said is a bit of a desert and not really been tapped into yet. And we'll delve into a bit more about uh, machine medicine in a, in, a, in a short while. But you you mentioned there that you, your your first undergrad was, was a philosophical degree. Uh, so how does that, um, how does that affect your decision-making process yeah so i guess it's a good it's a good it's a good question because it, i mean I, I mentioned it in the context of kind of my guiding interest but i think it also does affect the kind of the way i make decisions and 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 always has um ever since i did it and i think what's what's nice about philosophy um uh, from a sort of general perspective is that um it essentially forces you to um, to look at your toolkit, your sort of mental and cognitive toolkit, and try and understand um, the decisions you make and the concepts you use at a kind of sort of um, at a kind of basic and fundamental level. And I think, and I think that that's in a way is is quite a good skill for an entrepreneur because um, for a, a, a company to be really successful, what you need is to realize things early that other people only cotton on to later on. And there's, you can't do that by following the herd. You have to be, as it were, you know, alone at, at some at some sort of cognitive level, a lone wolf, and yeah. uh, and and go out and find those assumptions that you can convince yourself are actually held by most people, but turn out to be false. And because of that, uh, represents a, a huge opportunity. And, and 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 yeah, so I think it's it's kind of in terms of giving me sort of uh, giving me sort of uh, mental confidence. <laughs> in my yeah. own <laughs> the, the self-awareness yeah exactly yeah. It's, it's been hugely important throughout throughout my whole sort of adult life that's that's really interesting so i'm not come across many people with that sort of guiding background um within the within ai but more the life sciences as well um so do do you think it's well it obviously gives you an advantage um as a as a ceo of a, of a startup as an entrepreneur um, but do you think it gives you an added advantage within the life science industry as well? Or is it um, similar across different industries if you were to go into a different use case, perhaps? Um, I guess I think those, those sort of cognitive skills are, I think, useful in almost any industry. I struggle to think of one in which they, they, they wouldn't or they would be harmful. Or, but I, I think they, they could and should be useful in almost any industry, but as I said, I think they're particularly helpful in entrepreneurship, whereas where, yeah. where the objective often is to uncover those, those unrealized truths that, um, that uh, represent a, 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 you know, ultimately a commercial opportunity. Mm. Okay, interesting. And you moved across to machine medicine. Um, well, move across, you started machine medicine <laughs> because you realized that was sort of the best use of your vocational piece, as you said at the start of the episode. So yeah. what was the catalyst for that? I think, you know, it was, really, it was a, a few things that sort of flowed into that, to that decision. But, um, but I think really I was, I was trying to do several different jobs at once. 
you know, I was working as a, as a clinical doctor and trying, and trying to train as a neurologist and that in itself is a full-time job. And, uh, and then I was also, uh, you know, doing a PhD at, at, and, and, uh, and I, before that I'd done a master's. And so I was doing a lot of academic work and I'm trying to be an academic essentially as well. <laughs> so that was challenging in itself. But then in both those arenas, I felt that uh, I really became kind of a little bit disillusioned um, uh, and, and I guess if I had to put my finger on what I found particularly kind of frustrating about them, it, it, would, it would be that although I, although I enjoyed much of the kind of day-to-day -day work, um, I, I, didn't, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have named it in this way at the time, but what I really hankered for was scalability. Like how right. can we have, how can this, how is this going to have serious impact? And, mm. uh, and I just, I, I, you don't see that as a, as a, as a service provision clinician. You, you do not see that if, you know, you, you see, if, take the context of a clinic, right? We might be 10 patients in the clinic. The first patient comes in and you take the history and then you do the examination and then you come yeah. up with the management plan and then off he goes and the next one and you do it again. And, <laughs> and, you know, there were all sorts of other things that I, you know, from my computer science uh, background, I was aware that the way we were doing these things could be uh, done a lot better. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but that sort of absence of scalability was also um, uh, really the major driver for me and and it's the same in science you know gone are the gone are the days of the heroic scientist who can can sort of in a in a solitary uh, context kind of come up with uh, really transformative um findings i mean that maybe yeah. there may be certain fields where that's true like in mathematics and and mathematical physics and maybe some areas of, of mathematical computer science but i think generally you know science is now an industry of absolutely gargantuan proportions and it's very much mm. a kind of team effort uh, and that's and that's great uh, in its own right but uh but i felt like a very small cog in a big machine yeah and, and, and then i guess i felt that there was kind of there was another big machine which ought to exist which was machine medicine it didn't exist and actually mm. my skill set in terms of my clinical background and my technical background um positioned me well to bring that other big machine into existence yeah machine medicine or or what I hope it will, will one day be. <laughs> yeah. So, did you is the is the theory behind machine medicine in the first instance to take what you were doing as a clinician and what you're doing as a as a researcher and go right? How can we make as much of an impact as possible? Because mm. right now the tools that I have at the moment aren't allowing me to achieve this, mm. and there are now breakthroughs to allow me to achieve this. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, if you. Um, one of the things I found uh, striking when I was working as a doctor was I was I was always, I was kind of a technophile, so I was always getting like you know a new gadget, and and, and I've always been enthralled with uh, you know the, the latest applications that you can install on your smartphone and stuff. But you know, mm. um, but then but then I was so I was always kind of uh, you know keeping up to date with those things, and then as soon as I walked into the hospital, saying this may say in 2015. I remember a couple of times I had had the experience of like commuting to work and using four or five applications on the way, like order stuff to to get yeah. uh, to find out what uh, bus I was going to take in advance of getting it and stuff, and then walking into the hospital and I was pretty much back in 1998, just like that, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you're like, you know, none of yeah. those tools, none of those, none of those capabilities, and mm. and uh, and you know, I think a big. A big part of that is just that the, the the world of medicine is is just that it's a it's an entity in its own right. It has its own kind of language, its own laws, its own its own way of sort of being, and um and 
and that's all for good reasons. But it, yeah. it also exists sort of as a, a, in a way, a kind of sort of parallel universe to the rest of, of the world. I mean, if you just look at, the, for example, you know, where does that become concrete in terms of the regulatory burden on people yeah. developing new products? Right. It's, a, it's incredibly high. And there's already a right, if you just want to make it, you know, a, a phone or, or a kid's toy, there's already a huge regulatory burden. Right. In terms of uh, getting a CE mark and that kind of stuff. But for a medical device, it's just insanely greater. Um, and then you've got these communication difficulties between, you know, the language that's spoken in medicine. You know, clinicians have a language um, as, as sure as anything, and, and so do engineers. But but mm. they're, they're rarely, you know, I, I think what I thought the unfair advantage that I thought I had would be that, well, I'm somebody that's bilingual. I speak both those languages. And, and machine yeah. medicine, you know, if you think is, is really kind of, I think of it as an interface, an enabler between those two kind of worlds, the, the best kind of, um, practices and and attitudes from the tech world that's made you know the revolution yeah. in consumer electronics possible and that kind of customer centricity um, and user centricity that kind of thing and then but then also translating that into a real medical context right what does that actually look mm. like um, for the practicing day-to-day clinician and the patient and stuff because because often you know you have fantastic engineers that really have no idea about how medicine works and you have great doctors that really have no idea about how you know, yeah. software and, and other electronics uh, works. Yeah. So as acting it's, as a bridge between those two worlds, I think is somewhere where we can provide huge value. Yeah, that's definitely the the, the case. Um, and one thing that I was doing over Christmas, my uncle was a radiologist in the NHS. Right. Um, and he actually uses one of the products <laughs> that we that we work with on the podcast. Mm. Um, and yeah, he, he's sort of, was he he's coming up to, to 60 now <laughs> and so he's only just got his first iphone um and, and things like that so there is a probably a, a you're right in the analysis of a uh, a gap or or a mis, mis, mismatch between the tech world that can give so much to to clinicians mm. and the mm. clinicians themselves um through no fault of their own of course um but in terms of machine medicine neurotechnology you focused on mm. Um, was that always going to be the focus? Well, I, uh, I think it was always, you know, if I go back to my undergraduate in philosophy, that was always, you know, again, what's the relationship between computational devices that we construct ourselves, like Turing machines mm. or computers, and, uh, and the computational kind of devices that we are, like our yeah. central nervous system. That's a fascinating philosophical and also scientific and uh, sort of question. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was, that was, I'd say, if you know, although I kind of was a doctor and then a master's student in machine learning and then a PhD student <laughs> in computational neuroscience and, you know, did, that was always the kind of the guiding kind of interest. Like that's always been where I've thought the real, the, the, the most interesting sort of activity in science in this day and age is. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what exactly, how exactly you build the kind of the, the, a business in that area, you know, wasn't <laughs> obvious to me at all. Yeah. Right. So I, I started off just thinking, okay, when we started machine medicine, we were just we were thinking, okay, let's just look. This this is a motor assessment is a huge problem that's being badly badly managed at the moment, um, and is a and you know people physical disability affects half a billion people uh, worldwide, and it's also a big area of sort of neuromodulation. You know how the, the, the for example, in deep brain stimulation, the most common indication for deep brain stimulation is Parkinson's disease, which is a movement disorder. So we, it kind of, you knew there was, at least we'd be working in the right 
kind of ballpark if we started yeah. here and tried to solve the problem of doing um, you know, scalable and objective motor assessment, then that would be a good place. And as we sort of got into that and started and the company got going, we got our first bit of funding and stuff, then it became clearer and clearer how actually we could turn this into the, the, kind of, the ultimate yeah. kind of platform that I thought it should be. So actually I was going to looking, I was going to ask about if, if the platform will be branching out into other areas of neurotechnology, but mm -hmm. first off, why did you decide to do a platform in its own right, rather mm -hmm. than twinning a platform or a piece of software with a physical medical device, perhaps that you created with the hardware? Yeah. So that's, it's an interesting question. And, and if you look at neuromodulation today, it's, it's hardware dominated. So, yeah. you know, if you look at the, you know, the really sexy companies that are doing work in this area, they're all building hardware like um, yeah. you know, uh, Neuro, Neuropace or um, uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink, yeah. or, or even the, the sort of established incumbent companies like um, Abbott and Boston Scientific and Medtronic. They're all making essentially yeah. kind of brain pacers, pacemakers that, that at, the, at, the, at the most interesting ones also record. So they stimulate and record, but they're, they're, but they're making hardware and they're dealing with those kind of um, those kind of technical challenges that are attendant on making hardware. Um, however, if you if you think about kind of like what, what I said before about the, the essence of, of neuromodulation and neurotechnology really is about being able to program nervous systems and be able to read information uh, from them and write information to them, right? And that's, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a way of, of doing that and, and being able to reprogram nervous systems back to, back to health. And that, and when you sort of appreciate that, then it becomes clear that actually, although though it, there does need to be a stratum of hardware on which the software operates, yeah. because software can't operate independently of a hardware stratum. In fact, just as we've seen in the computer um, industry, the, the, the value has transitioned from, you know, like mainframe IBM computers up to now being very, very software centric. Yeah. We believe that the same thing will happen in neuromodulation. So that while now we're kind of, we're building the equivalents of like, you know, the, the early uh, machines and huge things that took up whole rooms um, in 15 years time, it'll be a very different story. And in 30 years time, it'll be completely unrecognizable with, with highly modular um, hardware that can basically be sort of um, uh, customized to, to a patient during a surgical planning stage. And then the value will all lie in, in using things like the internet of things and the, yeah. and the other sort of data sources which exist in order to reprogram that patient's uh, nervous system back to health. So when you say reprogram mm. somebody's nervous system back to health, mm. um, it sort of has some sort of unknown science fiction about that, mm. about it by a computer going into our, our body and, and reprogram. But on, on layman's terms, what does that, that, that mean? Yeah, so I think, you know, in, in kind of, um, in layman's terms, it's actually, I think the concept is kind of like, is relatively simple, I think. And it's kind of, if you think about something like, um, if you think about something like the butterfly effect, right? You know, where you have like a butterfly flaps its wings in, I don't know, Surrey, and then there's a, a hurricane in, um, in Kenya or something, okay, then, then, the reason that that's possible is because this the the, the Earth's um, sort of meteorological system is this incredibly uh, complex and and, and importantly a non-linear mm. dynamical system, yeah. right? So small differences can get magnified, yeah. you know, and and turned into very large ones. 
And the idea with, uh, with, with at least much of neurotechnology and neuromodulation is that, is that actually, if you, if you know how to make a very small and targeted intervention, you can cause very, very large changes in the overall kind of way, the dynamics, the overall way that a, a nervous system kind of behaves. Right. Um, and so, and that's a bit like, you know, that's kind of a, a, a bit, you know, you, if you think about, um, you know, a computer that's running a, a program, right, at the, at the fundamental level, it's just all zeros and ones, right? It's yes, just that those yeah. zeros and ones have been crafted so as to create whatever sort of, you know, impressive uh, production um, that the software is responsible for. And likewise, you know, with, with neuromodulation, the idea is that if we have something like, you know, a small electrode and we know how to stimulate the neurons and stuff, then we can, we can essentially, we can essentially read information into the, into the, mm. the nervous system. And if we also have recording electrodes, we can record information from it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, so that's the kind of that's the principle. Mm. And you mentioned Parkinson's disease is what you're looking at uh, yeah. at the mo moment. Oh, what other diseases um, could this neuromodulation work be attributed to, or to help either yeah. therapeutics or or diagnostics? So you know, most most obviously, you know, I, I, a nice way to kind of dichotomize it, I think, is to think about well, there's. There's, there's various things that can happen that can make you sort of unwell in terms of your central nervous system, but 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 um, but a, a reasonable way to think about it is you can you can either have activity that uh, should be there that you know that isn't there, and then you have to create that activity, or there's activity that that's there that shouldn't be there, and then you have to eliminate that activity. So it's either you if you think about it, it's either a kind of constructive uh, interaction where you're trying to create a new pattern of activity. It's a, yeah. Say a patient's depressed. You don't yep. want them to be depressed. You want to change that activity from depressed uh, characteristics to one that has the non-depressed characteristics. But in something like Parkinson's disease, it, it seems that um, it seems that actually there's, there's there are oscillations present which shouldn't be there. And so right. one of the reasons why it's and it and it seems to turn it seems to be the case that it's much easier to eliminate things that shouldn't be there than it is to establish things that should be there. You see what I mean? I see. So it'd be easier, it's easier at the moment to tackle Parkinson's disease than it would be to tackle depression. Yeah, so, so take for example, yeah. imagine sometimes uh, we, people use the analogy of an orchestra, right? It's like, you know, say if, if, you, if, you, if you've got two orchestras and they've both got problems, one of, one of the orchestra doesn't have a string section, right? And so mm. that, that part of it is missing. And the other orchestra has a, um, has a guy who's like just banging the drum completely out of time, right? And that's making a racket. It's much easier to go in and just, I don't know, like rugby tackle the guy who's <laughs> banging the drum, right? Than it is to learn how to play a, a string instrument and, a, and yeah. provide that complex additional yeah. part that's missing, right? And it seems to be, it seems to be that where, where we're effective in intervening in the brains uh, now, we're basically rugby, rugby tackling the, the drummer um, yeah. we, we've got these pathological oscillations and by putting electrodes into the correct part of the brain, you're essentially able to prevent those oscillations from happening. You're not doing anything that complex. You're kind of, you know, yeah. people have sometimes said you're kind of kicking the TV. Um, but m miraculously enough, it, it, for certain conditions, it seems to work. But in principle, yeah. you know, the next, uh, once, we've, once we've dealt with, or at least had a good effect upon these, uh, had some impact on these diseases where it seems that you, the, the objective is to eliminate pathological behavior. Then, of course, you know the the objective is to address those diseases where um, mm. where you need to establish healthful behavior, and that's already being addressed. And so that opens up the the possibility to things like 
obsessive compulsive disorder, um, uh, depression, which is a huge problem. Yeah. But even things like, you know, if we think about the uh, obesity crisis, right? By, right. by the, uh, Appetite is driven by neuronal behavior. So if you yeah. can put an electrode, at least in principle, as the, the clinical evidence for this is still uh, mm. sort of, um, uh, mounting, but at least in principle, if you can intervene in, in those neuronal populations and change the pattern of activity from one that uh, in, in, induces a, a, se a sense of hunger to one in, yeah. that induces a sense of satiety, then you could treat uh, obesity by uh, the root cause, right? So, mm. so these these kind of this is this is the kind of like, obesity crisis. You know, there would be few other health crises as, yeah. of the of the similar magnitude. So, question question then on a philosophical mm. point of view, with this software then or or this technology being able to eventually get down the route of adapting behaviours um, based on your your nervous system. Mm. Um, how far should you go morally? Yeah, so it's a great question that we, you know, we, I was discussing with um, Dr. Ritter the other day, and and um, and I think it's it's kind of a question for I guess us as a society. Um, you know, it's you know these are like say, say the the thing that we discussed, the dark and I discussed the, the other day on our, our own podcast. I think is a pretty good example. You know, imagine you were able to offer people um, an intervention that would reduce their level of aggression, right? So there might be you know, lots of people that are, are in prison for essentially reasons that stem from an inability to control their aggression, right? They do something like attack somebody that they perhaps wish that they hadn't done, but they couldn't control themselves at the time, say. Yeah. And so you might be able to offer to, to that person, you know, the possibility of stopping that from happening. That's kind of like you, you could look at that in two ways. One, you could look at it as a kind of therapeutic effect and say that you've actually done that person a favor if, they, if, if that's what they want. And that was Dirk's yeah. kind of view, as you said, as a clinician, if the, if the individual came to me and asked me um, to do it, I would do it. However, if the state asked me to do it, I would say no. Mm. So, you know, but, but, you know, these are really, you know, with any powerful technology, comes, yeah. you know, responsibility and, and yeah. moral quandaries. So there, there will be moral quandaries with this technology as yeah. with anything else. My, my thought on that one would be, would it, would it create a, a population or a society that has a small percentage that is adapted that has been mm -hmm. changed by technology and will they get a will they get an advantage will they be able to adapt it long term into giving positive advantages for them and mm. will that then create almost a, a two-tiered society where you have people who have not seeked um adapting them themselves neurologically and those that, that yeah. have and there'll be uh, there could be private healthcare implications on that, and the the access to it, and so there's quite a few question yeah. marks. But I think that's why you also need regulators. <laughs> yeah, I mean perhaps, but I think I think it's probably. Um, I mean, if you think about it, you know, in, it, 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 going back to what I was saying about you know uh, destructive interventions where you're eliminating activity that shouldn't be there, being a yeah. lot easier than than uh, constructive actions where you're trying to establish new patterns of activity that you would like to be there, say, kind of increasing cognitive performance is kind of that, an example of that constructive intervention par excellence. And I think will be extremely hard to do. Right. Um, and there will probably be, there will probably be consequences even if you did do it. But I guess, you know, in principle it's possible. Could you, you, mm. could, you could introduce modules that would give certain people advantages that would just completely outstrip anything that anybody would have any endowment yeah. anybody would have biologically 
then again, you know, I think we probably many, many decades away from that. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, there's, and there's much more benefit to be had from these technologies mm. in the interim in terms of treating people's diseases. Because one of the things I, I didn't mention is that, you know, we were talking about neurological disease actually, but, but one of the astonishing things about neuromodulation and, and other forms of neurotechnology is that by reprogramming the brain or reprogramming the nervous system, you can have effects upon um, many other organ systems like the cardiovascular system or even the inflammatory system. And it turns out the inflammatory mm. system, it's, which is responsible for you know, many diseases, but things like rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease, Actually, it's modulated by the nervous system. So by, 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 for example, stimulating the vagal nerve, you can actually modulate the inf inflammatory axis and, and reduce the amount of inflammation in, say, um, you know, inflammatory bowel disease. So these are kind of, you know, this is, so this opens it up to the whole, if you, if you even got the central nervous systems there to kind of program the rest of the body, right? Yeah, yeah. And so if we can program the, the, the device that programs the rest of the body, then you body. can... Yeah, yeah, do the whole fix thing. Fix a few more things. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah. So, in terms of um, the long term, you said that's many decades away. What we were just mm. talking about, but hypothesizing about. But um, in terms of the long term effects of this technology, is it something that you would need to keep doing? Would you need to keep taking sort of destructive? technology for the or stimulating the neurons like is it something you have to keep on doing and doing and doing or is it like dialysis or is it something that you 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 do it once and then you're fine yeah no no it doesn't it does seem like it's it's something that would have to be you know it's something that would have to uh, you'd have to retain uh, in most cases at least i mean um you know if let's think of a try and think of a sort of um a, an example is it, it it's people's uh, much about much of what determines, you know, much of what to say, let's think about like somebody that gets depression versus somebody that doesn't get depression. Right. There's, mm. there's, there's almost certainly sort of structural characteristics to their brain, which predispose, predispose them yeah. to, to, to getting that. So, so short of kind of rewiring their brain, which mm. who knows may become possible, but I don't, short of that, then, <laughs> then it's, I think it's, 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 you know, if you, if short of that, I think it was it's something that in most cases would have to re remain. And that gets to kind of, you know, one of the sort of interesting things about this, because we have to sort of talk about the more sort of blue sky elements of it and maybe sort yeah. of in, uh, exciting sort of neuroscientific elements of it, but, you know, a huge problem in, in this kind of area is things like battery life. Right, you know, just because you have to put these devices inside people, and then, and then, if you want them to to stimulate, and then maybe if you also want them to record, you know, the battery life is, is a huge problem. You have rechargeable versions now, but then you have the patient has to recharge them, and then can obviously run out. And yeah, if they're on holiday or they lose their recharge. So these these are sort of you know the more mundane so, so side what, of things, but hugely just, important. Just just on battery then, because that's yeah. obviously as we go forward into I don't know, e-mobility and, and different yeah. uses of, of, of or different ways of um, of fueling transportation systems. Mm. Um, do you think that's, an, that's obviously an advantage for you guys, um, the increase in battery technology? Um, and what what, what what you batteries are you using now? What do you need in the future? Just so we so we don't, we we're at, yeah, at machine medicine, and as I said, you know we we steer well clear of building hardware. Mm. And we fully intend to because of the, the yeah, long-term problems. Uh, well, the, the long-term prospects of the field we think are, are more, more, much more uh, software-centric than they are hardware-centric. But, mm. um, but you know, yeah, the, I mean, batteries are a huge element for the people that do build 
um, these softwares, so, you know, for Medtronic and, and Abbott and stuff, and, and building sort of small batteries with very long lifespans is, is going to be hugely valuable for yeah. um, increasing the capabilities of, of these uh, uh, kind of technologies. So you, just going back to uh, machine medicine and your journey to where you are today, what, what are some of the major challenges that you found creating a, a, a platform medical device almost, a software medical device almost, um, from, from not really much that's gone before you, similar to Sidar on the previous episode, yeah. what challenges did you face? Well, I think, I mean, a lot like, you know, one of the big problems with neuromodulation is actually just batteries. I think, you know, a lot, one of the big problems mm. with any company is just, you know, the, the simple things like people, finding the right people and building the right team, which, you know, is kind of your specialty, mm. um, is hugely, hugely challenging. Um, and somewhere where, you know, the learning curve has been very steep for me because previously I worked as a doctor and I went into the hospital and, <laughs> yeah. I would be basically be presented as a fait accompli with the people I was going to work with. And yeah. I wasn't offered the opportunity or, 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 or to choose them or and yeah. it didn't even cross my mind. Um, and like, uh, you know, likewise, I was um, in my scientific work, I was programming a lot and, and doing coding, coding a lot and that kind of thing. Uh, and then, and then I decided to start a med tech AI company. <laughs> like. And then I, the first thing I did is I immediately stopped doing either of those things. And yeah. started doing a lot of stuff like, you know, accounts and trying to find the right people and dealing with other people's problems and, yeah. and you know, trying to find a place where we could work and, uh, you know, all that sort yeah. of stuff. So, yeah. So the, the business side of things was, was more the challenge than the actual use I case. I think it's always the, the, the actual execution. It's always about execution, right? I mean, there'd yeah. be lots of, there'd be lots of kind of guys like, like me around the world who'd, you know, studied some neuroscience, studied some computer science and realized the potential of, of neuromodulation. But then the difficulty yeah. is, and I, you know, I have to say it, it has been an enormous difficulty for me as well, is to actually work out how you can turn that from an idea into a reality. And, and not just, you know, where do you, how do you climb up that mountain? You know, where's the path, right? Because you, yeah. you can say, oh yeah, in, in 20 years time, um, neurotechnology is just going to be having such a transformative effect. People will be paying with it. You know, they'll just have to think about paying for, for a transaction to go through. They'll be mm. gaming with it. They'll be uh, having their uh, you know health conditions treated with it. But yeah. you know, and that all sounds great. And but then the question is, well, given that I'm, it's a sort of uh, it's a sort of wet January morning in London, and I've got you know X amount of resources, which <laughs> at the beginning is not very much. Now, what do you do with those things? That's that's yeah. that's really challenging, right? Yeah. So how, how did you how did you break? How, well, have you broken down the steps yet to to the part? Yeah, I think now we've got a very. How have you done that? Now we've got a very clear idea. I think where we want to go with the business, but it, but initially it was just you know, I, I, I don't know because I, I couldn't. I, I I don't know any if anyone really could, but perhaps other people could, but certainly I couldn't. Um, just from uh, from from the from the perspective of a clinician kind of scientist, I had, mm. I had no idea. I mean, I'd had, I had, I was so sort of um, commercially naive that I really had no idea what, what, how to, how to build that business. Um, yeah. And I just, so I just had to start, you know, I just decided to st I'll just have to start somewhere and, yeah. and learn. And that's what yeah. I've been doing the whole time. And, and I'd say about 90% of that is making mistakes mm. just again and again and again and again, <laughs> and, just, <laughs> and, and just getting a bit better at not making them a, a little yeah. bit. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, being sort of as uh, humble in, in that regard, because 
if you don't yeah. acknowledge the mistakes, then you, you have no chance of, of recovering from them. Yeah. Um, but that's basically been it, just a, just a process of trial and error um, yeah. to sort of realize where, and of course it's informed by my experience in clinical work and, and scientific work, but, but really yeah. it was much more about, about learning what the jungle of sort of medical med tech business looks like. Yeah. Because that's, that's actually what you're fighting through is that underground, you know, look, you're climbing a mountain, but actually the thing in front of you is a, is a big tree covered in moss and there's a huge <laughs> creeper all over it. You need to fight yeah, your yeah. way through it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but you just need to make sure you're going up rather than down. Yeah. But you're not in a, you're not in a bad, you're not in a bad spot at the moment. Um, and, and to, to that end, I just wanted to do you to, to touch on where machine medicine is now, because you have clinical yeah. trials on right yeah, now. And so, so, so what, where, where are you now? So leave it a positive note. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we, um, we, so as I said, our, our first product is a, a, a product called Kelvin PD. And it's, yeah. um, it's, it's a movement measurement device, if you like, based on video um, and, uh, and, and utilizes um, the some tools of computer vision, in particular, a branch called pose estimation in order to track and, and estimate the, the severity of physical disability, in particular yeah. in, in Parkinson's patients, so PD. Um, and, and that's being used in numerous deep brain stimulation clinics here in, in London in a couple of big centers. Um, but also in, in, across the USA, and we're we're now building a version of the product for the EU, um, because you know it's very sort of stringent uh, data uh, yeah. laws around what can be done with European uh, uh, medical data in particular, but data in general. And uh, and then we also we also provide that same tool um, to clinical trials in in PD, and it's being used in a in a couple of uh, non-commercial trials where we essentially allow the, the clinicians and researchers to use it in exchange for the data. And then, and then also some, some commercial trials where we you know, basically sell the, the platform to medical device yeah. companies and, and drug companies that are, that are trying to get products um, that help treat Parkinson's disease to market. Awesome. So you've got an exciting year ahead exciting hope uh, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> if we uh as well i suppose we hopefully will get out, yeah, of these out of yeah. <laughs> um and then we'll go through but i just want to say absolutely fascinating uh conversation and some of the blue sky thinkings there we did and the philosophical side of things um hope you enjoyed it as well <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> um, i did it's been my pleasure nick awesome i know so thank you very much it's been been really good sort of to stimulate my brain on the philosophical side of things as i said <laughs> Um, everyone listening to this can listen back to the other three episodes, I believe, of the uh, series on your favourite podcast streaming services and on our YouTube channel. Um, but for now, hopefully we'll be listening or uh, seeing you again very soon. Thank you. That finishes this episode for LifeSight AI, the podcast series. I hope you got as much enjoyment out of that as I did. Join myself again in a couple of weeks where I'll be shining yet another light on a new area of AI within life sciences. In the meantime, follow Cypro on social media to hear about the latest updates on the series, but also on the roundtables and other work we do day to day. Please also like, share, tell a friend and comment on this podcast so that we can all promote the use of AI in life sciences together. Thanks for listening.